Good morning, everybody. We're a little slow getting started, and I'm not exactly sure how far we're going to get, but it's all right. We'll just go however far the Lord wants us to go today. It's been a while since I've been up here. I'm going to choose the words of my introduction very carefully this morning so we can actually preach the Word of God. That didn't happen last time, so. <laughs> and that's, you know, probably more my fault than anyone else. But anyway, um, we want to get back into the book of Revelation. It's been a long time. And by way of introduction, let me just review here for a moment. We last ended in Revelation chapter 6. And we were talking about the opening of the first seal judgment. And the opening of that seal judgment brought forth the white horse rider. The first two chapters of, I mean, first two verses of chapter 6. And we talked about that white horse rider, that imposter. Not the white horse rider of Revelation 19 that comes bearing a double edged sword, but the imposter who comes with a bow and no arrows, comes in the name of peace. And we talked about how that is Antichrist. And then we observed and analyzed some of the different scriptures in the. Uh, in the Old Testament that point to Antichrist in the New Testament. And I concluded last time by encouraging you to go study some of those passages. We don't have time for these purposes to get into Jesus' foreview of Antichrist, Isaiah's foreview of Antichrist, Daniel's foreview of Antichrist, the various places in the book of Daniel, or Paul's foreview, or even everything about John's foreview in the book of Revelation. But second to Jesus Christ... There's no other personage in the Word of God that is prophesied with more detail than the man of sin or Antichrist himself. And so really when you look at Scripture, aside from God's judgment and God causing people to be blind to the truth, there's no logical reason why the Jewish people, number one, shouldn't have recognized Jesus Christ when He came. And number two, why they will fail mostly to recognize Antichrist when He comes. And friends, our inability to discern God's truth oftentimes is a judgment from God against a rebellious nation. And I think we are experiencing that today here in America. That's why the populace elects the leaders that it does. That's why a conservative state like Oklahoma can have a law in their constitution that bans homosexual marriage and yet an empty black robe in a judicial bench can say that's unconstitutional and then it just goes forward and nobody says anything. The same thing happened in Utah. It's going to happen here in North Carolina because we live in a time when people put these type of leaders in office and then they stand by and let these things happen and do nothing and don't recognize the warnings and the implications of decisions like this. It's called confusion of face. And it's a judgment from God. And that's why Israel didn't recognize Jesus when He came. There were some that did. They were in the temple waiting for Him. Joseph of Arimathea says when he went and begged the body of Christ that he was one who waited for the kingdom of God. He knew who Christ was. And there will be many taken by surprise when Antichrist comes. And they should recognize Him because it's so clear in the Scriptures. Not just in a few verses, but spread across many Old Testament books. So if you have that outline from last time, I encourage you to go meditate on some of those Scriptures because the Bible has lots to say about Antichrist. I don't believe He will rise to power and sign a, a treaty with the nation of Israel while the church is here on earth. I believe this will take place after the rapture. Chronologically speaking, in the first verse of Revelation chapter 4, we see John raptured into heaven. That's a picture of the church's rapture. After that, we're in the throne room, of throne room of heaven. We've talked about this extensively, where the Lamb opens that or is given possession of that scroll, and it's affirmed that he has the authority to open that scroll. We talked about that scroll being the title deed of the earth. And as the Lamb begins to open that title deed, and exercise His authority, which Adam gave over to Satan in the Garden of Eden, 
When Christ begins to exercise His authority as the kinsman redeemer, these judgments come. The opening of each seal brings a judgment. We'll see that the opening of the seventh seal brings the seven trumpet judgments. The opening of the seventh trumpet brings the seven vile judgments. It's all connected to that title deed. And so when that first seal opens, so begins what the Bible calls the tribulation period. We believe that's a seven-year period. The Jewish teachers referred to this as the birth pangs of Messiah. The earth would go through birth pangs before this millennial kingdom would come to pass. The Bible elsewhere calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. The purpose of the tribulation is to do two things. It's to wake up the nation of Israel so that they will see that Jesus is Messiah. And number two, it's to bring judgment and wrath upon this wicked, rebellious planet. A, to preempt the setting up of the reign of Jesus Christ in fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. This tribulation begins when Antichrist signs a covenant or a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. So that first seal we talked about in Revelation 6 shows the white horse rider coming with a bow and no arrows. He comes in the name of peace. And power and authority is given unto Him. Not the, not the crown of authority, but the crown of victory is given unto Him. And He rises to power very quickly. And this culminates, according to Daniel chapter 9, in the signing of a covenant with the nation of Israel, which will give them permission to reinstitute, I believe, the temple worship. Unfortunately, halfway through this seven-year covenant, Antichrist breaks his word. He goes into the temple and desecrates it and sets himself up as God. And the world will follow. And Israel will be persecuted in a way they've never seen in the history of the world. And so all this begins, this period begins with the opening of the first seal. We are now into the tribulation. Much of the book of Revelation deals actually with the second half of the tribulation. The last three and a half years after the covenant is broken. Jesus refers to this as the great tribulation. Okay, So you have the tribulation which is seven years. Begins with the treaty from Daniel 9. And halfway through the treaty is broken and you have this period of great tribulation. That's where the judgments intensify and things begin to be wrapped up. So you have a seven-year period divided into two. And we're going to talk about that some more. But before we can really proceed into the period of tribulation, which has begun with the opening of this first seal, I think we need to again take a slight break from the book of Revelation and look at a prophecy in the book of Daniel. You see, it's impossible to properly understand the book of Revelation without understanding the context of the book of Daniel. The two are intertwined. They talk about the same things. They talk about the same Antichrist, the same tribulation. Daniel focuses on this time as it relates to his people, the nation of Israel. Revelation focuses on this time as it relates to the whole world. So the two go together. And it's the prophecy of Daniel in chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy that tells us the length of time that Antichrist will reign. The length of this tribulation. And it sets the context for everything that will follow from Revelation 6 on until the coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. But before we turn there, let's go to the book of Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah 66, the very last chapter. Did you know that the book of Isaiah is a microcosm of the whole Bible? How many books are in the Bible? 66. How many chapters are in Isaiah? 66. If you follow the book of Isaiah, it's like a compact version of the Bible. The revelation proceeds as it does in the whole Bible. It's very interesting how that works. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered several decades ago near Qumran in, Israel, in the desert in Israel, one of the scrolls that was found dated to about 250 B.C. was the complete text of the scroll of Isaiah. The complete book. 
And what had been preserved there in those scrolls in Hebrew was exactly the text as it's been preserved for us as we read it today in this English translation of the Bible, the King James. So a, a miraculous demonstration of God's preservation. But Isaiah 66 has a very interesting prophecy regarding the nation of Israel in verse 8. It says, Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord. This is a reference to the people of Israel. And God asked a, a question, is it possible for a nation to be born at once? Was the United States born at once in history? Nobody have an answer? No, what had to happen for several years before the United States could actually form its government and start to exist? What usually has to happen for a nation, it can declare its independence all day long, but what has to happen for it to actually get its independence? It has to fight a war. The Revolutionary War labored on for several years before the independence declared on July 4, 1776 could actually or could be actualized as it was in 1781. It wasn't so with Israel. Israel or the land of Palestine was under British control after World War, around the time of, I don't remember exactly when it came into place, but through World War I up until 1948. And on May 14, 1948, that British mandate expired according to a UN declaration. So the British control expired. On that same day, Israel declared its independence and declared itself to be a nation. And before that day was over, that 24-hour period, the United States, Great Britain, and several other of the world's most powerful nations recognized the sovereignty of Israel and affirmed it to be a nation. So in a single day, control of a nation expired, a new nation was declared, and the world's powers recognized it. It wasn't until after that that Israel had to fight the Six-Day War. They weren't fighting for independence. They were already given the independence and then had to defend it in the Six-Day War and later in the War of Yom Kippur and things like that. But Israel was born, literally, the modern state of Israel was born in a day. This is a prophecy in Isaiah 66 of that event. Something that's never happened in the history of the world. And then look in verse 9, shall I bring to the birth. Israel, the modern state of Israel, was born in 1948. It was born. But, did it bring forth? No, Israel still rejects Jesus in large part as the Messiah. Israel is not a land today where Messiah is worshipped. There's no temple there. Most Jews settling in the land of Israel are very secular and really don't care about the things of God. But God says this, shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. God's not going to cause something to be born and then not cause it to grow and bring forth. So just as Israel was born in 1948, the modern state, we can rest assured that she will one day wake up and recognize her Messiah. Unfortunately, it's going to take a time of great tribulation, a time of Jacob's trouble, the rule and reign of Antichrist, and persecution the, like, the likes of which the Jew has never seen for this bringing forth to happen. But just as the birth took place, an amazing prophecy here, so the bringing forth will take place. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 30. I'm just trying to set the stage here. My introductions are really long all the time. I don't... I got to do something about that problem. Here we have another reference, I believe, to this amazing event, May 14th of 1948. 
Verse 3 of chapter 30, For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of My people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. That happened in May of 1948. Israel was regathered as a nation and born at once. Verse 4, and, then the, and these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. So after God said, I will, bring, I will regather you and bring again your captivity. Verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of war, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all the faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. God says He will regather the nation, 1948, but after that will be a time of Jacob's trouble. And the bringing forth referred to in Isaiah won't take place until Jacob is saved out of that time. That time of Jacob's trouble is the tribulation period, I believe. And so, we have Israel regathered in the land. We, we, we stand on that side of history. I can understand why the Reformers, back in the, the times of the Reformation, I can understand why Christians prior to the 20th century might look at some of these prophecies might look at Revelation and start to think that they should be spiritually applied to the church. That God had forsaken Israel and perhaps these prophecies aren't literal. Maybe the prince that shall come in Daniel 9 is not the Antichrist. Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe Antichrist is not a literal person. He's a world system. I can kind of understand that perspective when Israel was scattered across the world and in many places thought not to exist. I can understand why Luther would maybe come to some of his crazy conclusions. But in this day and time, we have no, we have no excuse for those errors. We've seen Israel regathered into the land. Do you know that we're into a period now where there's going to be four blood moons in quick succession? I don't know what that means. I'm not going to prophesy anything today. I do know that when that's happened before throughout history, something major has taken place with the nation of Israel. I'm curious to see if that happens again. Maybe it'll be permission for the Jew to rebuild his temple. I don't know. I don't know. I believe the coming of Christ is near. But we have no excuse looking at recent history and looking at Israel as the flashpoint of this world. We have no excuse to mistakenly fall into covenant theology or replacement theology. We have no excuse to spiritualize these prophecies. We have no excuse to think that Christ's coming is some distant thing that has no bearing on us whatsoever. We don't have the excuses that maybe the reformers could argue. And yet many today are falling into that teaching. Many solid brethren who preach the Word of God boldly on the streets and preach a solid gospel have been deceived into believing this replacement theology, which I think is dangerous. I think it's dangerous. Many people that believe these things are born-again brethren. I love them. I'm thankful for their testimony, but I think they do err not knowing the Scriptures. Notwithstanding, we are talking about the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. We've already entered that period in Revelation 6. Today, I want to turn to Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to look the next couple of weeks at a very, very important prophecy. In fact, it's one of the most important prophecies in all of Scripture because it demonstrates that the Word of God, when it tells the future, is precise and exact. It's not vague. It's not full of general prophecies that can be interpreted with a whole plethora of interpretations. It's not like the Quran. Who makes, which makes prophecies that anybody could fulfill. It's not like Nostradamus whose quote-unquote writings are made to say things they never said. The Bible's prophecy is precise and exact. And it's fulfilled prophecy like what we're going to see here with Daniel's 70 weeks that we can trust the Bible. 
The Bible can be trusted because of visible and observable historical, archaeological, scientific, and prophetical evidence. That's something the theory of evolution or evolution doesn't have. Yet everybody just believes it. It doesn't have observable evidence on its side. It doesn't have real testable science on its side. It has man-made philosophy. And the Bible says to be aware of man-made philosophy. But the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks, I'm going to tell you, the first 69 weeks were fulfilled exactly as God prophesied it. And Daniel wrote these words given to him by the angel Gabriel about 85 years before the prophecy's time period even started. And when Jesus Christ walked into Jeru came into Jerusalem on that cult, and when He was crucified the next week on the Feast of Passover, that 69 weeks, those first 69 weeks ended at the exact time they were supposed to be. And I'm not talking about some symbolic prophetic year. I'm not talking about a calendar year as we look at it rounded up. I'm talking about precise solar years. 365.242199 days is a year according to the way the earth rotates around the sun. And so it's exact. And I'm real excited to get into this. But let's look at Daniel chapter 9. I just want to read through the chapter. And that may get, be as far as I get this morning. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. This was about 538 B.C. This Darius the Mede mentioned here, the same one in Daniel 6, Daniel in the lion's den, historically was a man by the name of Cyaxerxes II. This was King Cyrus's uncle. King Cyrus's uncle, when Persia became the world empire, when Babylon was overthrown, like you see in Daniel 5, Belshazzar's feast, Cyrus the king prophesied by name in the Scriptures who would give Israel permission to return and rebuild their temple, made his uncle, Cyaxerxes, the governor over the realm of Babylon. You see, Media Persia, the second great kingdom prophesied in Daniel 2, was much bigger than the province of Babylon. And so this Darius the Mede is a reference to Cyrus's uncle. It says he was made king. In other words, someone else made him king, which was Cyrus the Great. Okay? We'd have a king of Persia later, Darius, mentioned in the book of Ezra. It's not the same person. So this was the governor who was made king over Chaldea. This was 538 B.C. This takes place right after Belshazzar's feast and probably not within the same time frame of Daniel in the lion's den. In the first year of his reign... I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So what I want you to remember is Daniel here at chapter 9 was meditating over a prophecy from Jeremiah. Jeremiah had prophesied that Israel would go into captivity for 70 years. And then God would allow them to return to the land. And this was so that the land could keep its Sabbaths. Something God commanded the people to do and they never did. They never gave the land rest like they were supposed to from the days of Joshua on. Now, Daniel 9 takes place after Daniel 5 and 6. And then in Daniel 7, we have the prophecies of the four Gentile world kingdoms, those great beasts. It agrees with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. Okay? This prophecy, this vision takes place first, where Daniel sees the four Gentile world kingdoms, that Antichrist will be one of the horns, he will come out of the ten horns of the fourth beast. Daniel sees this first in Daniel 7. In Daniel 8, he has the vision of the ram and the he-goat, talking about how Persia would be overthrown by the Grecian Empire. And then out of one of the four horns of the Greek Empire would come a little horn, Antichrist. So Daniel 8 shows us that Antichrist will come out of the Syrian kingdom, 
the, 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 the kingdom of the beast will be ten horns, ten kingdoms. One of those will somehow involve Syria. So Antichrist will come out of the fourth kingdom. He'll come out of the Syrian aspect of that kingdom. And then we get to Daniel chapter 9 where he begins to meditate upon this prophecy of Jeremiah. And Gabriel, the same one who interprets his vision in Daniel 8, is going to come and show him what, from what... Uh, uh, people, Antichrist will come. And when it will take place. And so, we've got this progressive revelation when taken together gives us a pretty clear idea of where and when, from where and, and when Antichrist will come. But Daniel's meditating on this prophecy of the 70 years of captivity. Turn with me back to Jeremiah real quick. There's a lot of lessons in this chapter beyond prophecy when we look at Daniel's behavior and his prayer for his nation. Some lessons for us in terms of praying for our nation. I'll get to that here in a moment. Look at Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12. And this whole nation shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will then punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans and will make it a perpetual desolation. So 70 years of captivity is prophesied for the people of Israel in Jeremiah's day. Now, Daniel was part of the first captivity that took place when Nebuchadnezzar invaded the land in 606 B.C. Okay? In 536 B.C., Babylon was overthrown and Cyrus gave his decree for the Jews to return to Jerusalem. So you had the 70, year of capti 70 years of captivity. The captivity started when Daniel and his group were taken captive and it ended when the first group under Zerubbabel was allowed to return because of uh, Cyrus's decree. So prophecy was fulfilled. Daniel was kind of around this time period. You know, about 538, 537 B.C. I think uh, the decree was given in 536 and the destruction, I mean the overthrow of Babylon was in 538. So sometime between 538 and 536, Daniel knew that the time was coming for this prophecy to end. You had 70 years of servitude and captivity to the king of Babylon. There were also 70 years, if you look at history, of what the Bible calls desolations where the temple was desecrated. So this prophecy was fulfilled in one, of, in one of two ways in terms of captivity and in terms of the desecration of the temple. It was in 586 B.C. that Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed the city of Jerusalem and raised the temple to the ground. It was in 516 B.C. that the, the temple was rebuilt and rededicated by the remnant that returned under Zerubbabel. So we have two periods of 70 years Seventy years of captivity as refers to the people and seventy years of captivity as refers to the desolation of the temple. And so Daniel knew these seventy year periods were coming to an end. So he was seeking the Lord and meditating upon these Scriptures. Look at verse 3 of Daniel 9. The temple was completed, by the way, in the sixth year of Darius the Persian, or Darius, uh, King Darius, that's Ezra 6.15, so that would have been 5.16 B.C. Verse 3, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Do we ever pray like that? And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love Him and to them that keep His commandments, we have sinned. Not my people has sinned. Not the Jew has sinned. Not these crazy fools here in Israel have sinned. We have sinned. Daniel talks in the first person. He includes himself. And we have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in the name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs unto Thee, but unto us confusion of faces as at this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, 
Verse 8, O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against Thee. To the Lord our God belongs mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel has transgressed Thy law, even by departing, that they may not obey Thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against Him. And then Daniel goes on to summarize these curses from the Torah. Verse 14, Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all His works, which He does. For we obeyed not His voice. God brings death and destruction. God brings judgment to nations and He's righteous in doing so. I don't care what modern day American churchianity says about that. Daniel understood it. God was righteous. And Daniel said, we obeyed not His voice. Verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, Thou hast brought Thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and hast gotten Thee renowned as at this day. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. Notice how Daniel, <coughs> contemplating the end of this 70 years, goes to the Lord on behalf of his nation and speaks in the first person. He includes himself as being guilty. How often have we decried the sins of our nation and the state of things today? And we almost do it sometimes. I know I'm guilty with a self-righteous pride. That's them, not us. When in reality, it's not them, the Democrats, the politicians, and the liberals that have sinned. It's us. All of us here in America. Some of us have sinned by sins of commission. We've committed these atrocious acts that the Word of God condemns. And many of us are guilty by sins of omission. We've kept quiet. We've turned a blind eye. We've allowed error to creep into the churches. We've seen things and we've said nothing. We've become so numb to the ways of this world that when these popular Christian music artists who wouldn't know how to exegete a single passage of Scripture, will come out and affirm that homosexual marriage is okay with God. We're so numb, it doesn't even bother us. We'll just keep listening to the music anyway. We have sinned here in America. We have done wickedly. It's our fault. And as we pray for our nation, my friends, we must have a heart like Daniel. We must go to God in the first person. We must pray for our leaders. We must pray for our nation. Oh, we can be angry. We can be vexed as Lot was vexed in Sodom. But understand that we're part of the problem. And may we have this attitude of Daniel as we approach the Lord humbly. And may we see where we have done wrong. And going forward, may we not be quiet. May we not allow our discouragement and our depression to cause us just to say, be done with it all. Notice that it talks about, Daniel talks about one of the judgments on Israel being confusion of face. That's where people are unable, because of confusion to God, from God, to make decisions that benefit the nation. That's why Israel ended up in the place it was. I mean, God even gave King Zedekiah of Judah the opportunity to go out and surrender to the king of Babylon, and God would preserve the nation. But Zedekiah was overwhelmed with confusion of face. And even though he knew there was no way his army could match that of the Babylonians, he had the prophet of God begging him to obey God. He decided not to anyway. That's the judgment of God. That's why our leaders pass laws that hurt the nation and hurt the economy. Because they don't have the capacity to see what's good anymore. We'll destroy ourselves just like the Syrians destroyed themselves when they came to invade Judah and God sent out the army and Jehoshaphat and told them to watch. I'm going to fight for you. And the Syrians turned on themselves. That's called confusion of face. And that Daniel saw it in his day. Friends, we have that here in America today. Confusion of face. Our president's so confused he doesn't know what he's doing. It's not because he's a moron or an idiot. It's because it's judgment from God. The churches are so confused they don't know what truth is anymore. 
It's not because they're unable to see it or they haven't been taught it. It's because they're under God's judgment. Confusion of face. Daniel was contemplating the end of the 70 years of captivity and he was going and praying for his people and making repentance for the sins of the nation. Praying that God would honor that prophecy and restore the people. As we get down to um, verse 20, he goes on praying in verses 17 through 19, asking the Lord to forgive and to have mercy. Praying in the first person. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Remember, we're talking about His people Israel. This isn't the Gentiles. This isn't the nations. This is Israel. It's going to be important later on in the chapter. And presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of God. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. What's he referring to here? Chapter 8. Chapter 8, Gabriel came and interpreted the vision of the ram and the he-goat for Daniel. So Daniel recognizes this angel is the same one who gave him the interpretation in chapter 8. That would have been back in 550 B.C., probably about 13 years before chapter 9. So Daniel sees Gabriel about 13 years later here and recognizes him. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Old Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications and the commandment came forth, and I am, came, I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Look what da- Gabriel says to Daniel, this prophet, who's confessing his sin and knows he's partly guilty and part to blame. Gabriel says, Thou art greatly beloved. And that's a testimony. Do you realize that in Christ Jesus, because of what He has done, that that's our testimony before God the Father? We are greatly beloved by God the Creator because of what Jesus Christ has done. And that ought to motivate us to go out and be obedient. That ought to motivate us to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. Man, what an amazing thing that the omnipotent, almighty Creator would look down on finite man and say, Thou art beloved. That's not the God of the Quran. He just acts randomly according to what he feels like doing when he wakes up each morning. That's not the God of the Quran. The God of Islam and the God of the Bible are not the same. That's some of the most foolishness I've ever heard. Does anybody know what Abraham was called? What what, what he was called? The friend of God. Look at Isaiah 41, verse 8. This is just an amazing thing that, that the omnipotent God would call a man his sin. I mean, his friend. Chapter 41, verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. And that just blows me away that God would look upon a finite man and say, He's my friend. God. The Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, what a friend of sinners. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, the church is not only the friend of God, but the bride of Christ. That's just amazing. That's not man-made religion. That's not a religion of fear and superstition. That's the Gospel. Amazing. Now look. Daniel is meditating on the end of this 70-year prophecy which God would fulfill, and under Zerubbabel, the remnant would return. This takes place in the book of Ezra. You can read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. The book of Esther takes place in this time period as well. But Gabriel came to say, look, we're going to talk about the whole history of Israel moving forward. We're not going to talk about this 70 years. We're going to talk about something bigger and broader. Don't you concern yourself with this This will be fulfilled, but we're going to talk about God's entire purpose for the nation of Israel. Look at verse 24. Or verse 23, Thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy city. 
So yes, the captivity would end after 70 years, but God had determined 70 weeks. That word week there is the word seven. Seventy-sevens. In English, we don't have a word that connotes a grouping of seven. The only one we have is weeks. Seventy-sevens or 70 weeks. A week is seven days, so that's what we understand it to be, seventy-sevens. Not 70 years, but 77s, God says, He has determined upon thy people. Who is Daniel's people? Israel. Is it the church? No. Is it the Gentiles? No. God has determined 70 weeks upon thy people and upon thy holy city. What's Daniel's holy city? Where did he pray toward every day when he got in trouble with Darius the king in chapter 6? Jerusalem. So 70 weeks are determined for Israel, the people, and for the 70, I mean for the city of Jerusalem. We need to understand that going forward in this chapter, this is referring to Israel, not the church. And there's no reason to think otherwise. Now, look, 70 weeks are determined to do what? Verse 24, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So God had purposed 70 years for Israel to return from the captivity, but He had purposed 70 weeks of years to accomplish six things with regard to the people of Israel. So God had purposed 70 weeks here to accomplish six things in terms of Israel and Jerusalem. What are they? To finish the transgression. Has Israel's transgression against God been finished? No. Hadn't happened. To make an end of sins. Has sin been ended with regard to Israel? Do they still reject God and Jesus as Messiah? Hadn't happened. To make reconciliation for iniquity. Has Israel been reconciled to God as a nation? No. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Has everlasting righteousness been brought to this earth? No. To seal up the vision and the prophecy. Has God's vision and prophecy and revelation been completed, sealed up, and finished? No. And then six, to anoint the most holy. Who's the most holy? Messiah, has He been anointed as King over this earth from the throne of David yet? No. He sits at the right hand of the Father until His enemies be made His footstool. In the hearts of believers, He's King. In the hearts of believers, we've been made righteous by Christ. But this is referring to Israel. Seventy weeks of years were, were determined to accomplish these six things. And so obviously, none of those six things have happened. Some of the replacement theology people claim that all of this was fulfilled before 70 A.D. And most of these six things listed here were fulfilled at the cross. And that Antichrist who shows up here in Daniel chapter 9 is really not Antichrist, it's Jesus. There's only one thing I can really say to respond to that and it's a text message word. When I think of that, this is all I can come up with. Laugh out loud. Come on. Come on. Can you be that ignorant of history and ignorant of the state of the people of Israel and the nation of Israel today to come up with those wacky interpretations? No. I don't understand that. Do a little study. Read a little history. Observe a few things outside your comfort zone. And you'll see that this is not so. Seventy weeks of years were determined for these six things to happen. Now, Verse 25, this is where it gets important. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, not the temple, but Jerusalem, the city, unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So in other words, we have this prophecy of 70 weeks, 77s. And so, what we have here is a division of seven sevens 
followed by 62 sevens. I don't, I've just wiped this down with a wet cloth and now, yes, please. Y'all be patient with me. I might go a few minutes over today because I want to get at least to what this prophecy is saying so that I can talk about how it's fulfilled next week. So we have a period... What in the world? Okay, it must just be still wet here. So we have a period of seven followed by 62. These two together equals 69 weeks. And so it says here that the 77s would begin when a commandment was given, given to restore and build Jerusalem. So you have seven. From that commandment, you have seven and 62. And then following the 62 of the seven plus 62, something that, that would end with Messiah the Prince. And so from the commandment to Messiah the Prince is 69 weeks. Okay? That's what you have here. It says in verse 26, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. But understand that Daniel's already said seven and 62. So after the 62 includes by necessity the seven. So after 69 weeks, Messiah the Prince would come. No, I'm sorry. Let's see. To restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So that's 69 weeks, right? The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Then verse 26, and after threescore and two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. After threescore and two weeks, understand, is after 69 weeks. Because you have three periods, 7, 62, and then you have another uh, 1. Later we'll see. So when it says after 62, Messiah will be cut off, it means after 69. Because you have 7 first, then 62. After 69 weeks, or 62, 3 score and 2, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for Himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. Unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he, that's the prince that shall come, if you adhere to the rules of normal grammar in normal human language, the nearest antecedent of the pronoun, he, go back, that's the prince that shall come, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So after 69, you have one week. That'll be the 70th week. For one week, and in the midst of the week, halfway through, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. He'll put an end to the temple sacrifices. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation. What is the consummation? Those six things referred to there earlier in the chapter. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So we have 77s here. We have a period of seven. 62, and then 1. The 77s are divided into 7, 62, and 1. That gives us 70 weeks. Okay? 7s, that word in Hebrew, our English equivalent, week. It's a grouping of the number 7. And the context here is very clear. We're talking about years. The commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, not the temple, but the city, until Messiah the Prince would be 69 weeks. It would take seven weeks or 49 years for the streets and the walls to be rebuilt in troublesome times. We know that Nehemiah started this project with the building of the walls. And the book of Nehemiah covers a period of years. It kind of reverts back to the return of Zerubbabel and in, in, in the first uh, return. It kind of reverts back in part of the book, but most of the book takes place during this first seven weeks, it would take 49 years for this work to be done. The commandment was given, and it would take 49 years for the streets and the walls and the city to be rebuilt in troublesome times. We know these were troublesome times by reading the book of Nehemiah. Lots of people tried to stop the building of these walls. And then it tells us after 62, 
which inevitably includes the seven. So after 69, the Bible tells us two things will happen. The 69 ends with Messiah the Prince, and then after this period, two things would happen. Number one, Messiah would be cut off. When was Messiah cut off by the people of Israel? When was Messiah declared to be the prince by the people of Israel, first of all? That happened. The triumphal entry. When was Messiah cut off? It wasn't very long after that triumphal entry. At the crucifixion. Two things would happen after the 69 weeks. 69 weeks would end with Messiah the prince. When was that? Palm Sunday. After 69 weeks, He would be cut off. He was crucified the next week. And then a second thing it says will happen after the 69 weeks. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the temple. When was Jerusalem destroyed and the temple obliterated after the time of Jesus Christ? 70 AD. Who were the people that did it? The Romans. So now we know that the fourth Gentile kingdom is the Roman Empire. Because it's the Romans that destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. Amazing fulfillment of prophecy. And 70 A.D. took place after Jesus' triumphal entry. Just like the crucifixion did. So we know two things will happen. And then look what it says. After it talks about the city and the temple being destroyed by the people of the prince that shall come. The prince is of the people that destroyed the city. Who were the people? The Romans. Who's the prince? Antichrist, obviously. Antichrist is connected to the Roman Empire, the fourth Gentile world kingdom. We already know this based on Daniel's visions in chapter 7 and chapter 8. It's connected to the, world, the Roman Empire. Roman Empire really hasn't ever ceased to exist, by the way. I'm not going to get into that. But look, he'll destroy the, the, the prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a war, I mean, shall be with a flood, and look, and unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. So we have this unto the end phrase before we get to chapter verse 27 where it talks about the last of the 70 weeks. So after the 69 weeks, two things would happen, and then there would be war and trouble for the people of Israel unto the time of the end. So it's obvious that there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. The 69th week ended when Messiah was declared the prince. After that, he was cut off and the Romans destroyed the city and the temple. And following 70 AD, unto the end, there would be desolations and war determined for the people of Israel. When does the 70th week start? It says in verse 27, He, that is the prince that shall come, will confirm the covenant with many for one week. The 70th week, which is a period of seven years, begins when the prince of the, that comes from the people that destroyed the city in Jerusalem, I mean city and the temple in 70 AD, the 70th week begins when this prince signs a treaty with Israel. And this treaty will obviously allow them to live at peace and engage in their temple worship, something they're unable to do today. So we have a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. 69 of these 70 weeks were fulfilled. It ended, I believe, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus was cut off, A.D. 30. The Romans destroyed the city and the temple, A.D. 70. And from A.D. 70 until the present day has been a time when Israel has been persecuted, when Israel has been scattered, when Israel has been involved in war and the attempts of nations to eradicate them from the face of the planet, time and time and time again, from the Roman Catholics in the Middle Ages to the Germans in World War I and World War II, to the Muslim countries of today. Okay? It's, it's happened. This huge long period of time. I believe that this gap, we've talked about it before, comprises the church age. After Messiah was cut off, the church was born at Pentecost. Fifty days after His resurrection. 
He was raised on the Feast of First Fruits. He, the Holy Spirit came on the Feast of Pentecost, which was 50 days later. The church was born. And since Pentecost, God, in a sense, has put on hold His plans and purposes for Israel as a nation so that He could raise up a peculiar people. A special thing. The church. What is the church? Jew and Gentile gathered together as one people as the bride of Christ. We're in the church age. That church age is laid out historically in Revelation 2 and 3 with the message to the churches. We've talked about that. When does the church age end? The rapture. Then God turns again to fulfill what has been purposed for the nation of Israel. The gap is right here in the Scripture unto the end of the war. But God's only given prophecy to Daniel as concerns the nation of Israel. And during this gap, God's attention is turned to the church. Not that He's still not working in Israel. I mean, we've seen them regathered into the land in 1948 and things are starting to happen. God's primary activity is with the church, Jew and Gentile. But His primary activity is going to become the nation of Israel after the rapture and the coming of Antichrist. There'll still be Gentiles that are saved. We see the fruit of the Jewish evangelists later here in, in, in Revelation chapter 7 and on beyond. The fruit is Gentile converts, but His primary activity will be with Israel as it was in the Old Testament. So we have a gap here. But Daniel is only seeing primarily God's dealings with Israel. Seventy weeks. Sixty-nine of those have been fulfilled. The 70th is yet to come. That is the tribulation. That's where we get this seven-year period that elsewhere is called the time of Jacob's trouble. The 70-week begins with the peace treaty. He, the nearest antecedent to that pronoun in this Scripture is the prince that shall come. Not Messiah in the beginning of Verse 26, there's a lot of people that interpret that to mean Messiah is the He that will confirm the covenant. And then He'll break the covenant. That is ludicrous. You can't read, you can't read Hebrew or English like that. It doesn't make any sense. He is referring to the prince that shall come. Antichrist. Halfway through the week, as I've said, He breaks the covenant with an abomination of desolation and He causes the sacrifice and the temple worship to cease. The way we can know that this is not referring to Messiah is based on some of Jesus' words. Because Jesus in the Gospels refers to this very breaking of the covenant. The abomination of desolation. Let me just look at that real quick and I'll wrap up. Matthew chapter 24. At verse 15, Jesus is in His Olivet Discourse when He's talking about the last days to His disciples. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. The abomination of desolation is when He, the prince that shall come, will break the covenant in the middle of the week. Whoso readeth, let him understand, and let him which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time, nor no, no nor ever shall be. And except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sakes, those days shall be shortened. Jesus refers as the period from the abomination of desolation until the end as being the great tribulation. And if, if those days weren't shortened, if they weren't limited to the three and a half years, the 42 months talking about in Revelation then no flesh would be saved. But for Israel's sake, His elect here, they were shortened. But Jesus is referring to the abomination of desolation and He says after this happens will be great tribulation that the world has never seen. If it was Jesus that broke the Old Testament covenant at the cross, like the replacement theologian says, where was the great tribulation that the world has never seen in its history? Where was that? 
Where did the sun turn black and the moon turn to blood? I don't know when that happened. Because Jesus talked about that in this Olivet Discourse. He repeats the same thing in Mark chapter 13 when talking about it. The sign would be the abomination of desolation. How can Messiah be the one that institutes that when Jesus refers to it here as an evil thing? As something that would bring judgment. As something that would bring great tribulation that had never been seen on planet earth. I dare say that something fitting that description didn't happen in 70 A.D. Some people would claim that the Romans destroying Jerusalem was the fulfillment of that great tribulation. Come on. That was minor compared to some of the genocides that this world has seen in the 20th century. So you have... I'll just put it this way one more time and we'll end just so I can map it out for you. What you have in the prophetic calendar for Israel is a period of seven years or seven sevens, 49 years, seven weeks, followed by a period of 62 weeks. During this seven year seven-week period, the city and the streets would be rebuilt in in troublesome times. And then after this 62-week period, which necessarily includes the seven, so we've got 69 weeks, two things would would happen. Messiah would be cut off. And then you'd have the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And then you'd have war and desolations unto the end. So you have this gap, which is the church age. And then you have the the 70th week or the one week here at the end, which would be the tribulation. And that tribulation is divided into two periods. The first half, which involves some of the sealed judgments. And then the last half, which is from the abomination of desolation unto the end. And Jesus calls this the great tribulation. So the tribulation is the seven-year period. The great tribulation is the last half of that. And so that kind of maps out God's plan and purpose to accomplish those six things I mentioned with the people of Israel. God told Daniel here that it would involve 77s or 70 weeks of years. How many years is that? 490. 69 is 483. So from the going forth of the commandment unto Messiah the Prince was 483 years. And next week I'm going to show you how that happened exactly. Not rounded off, not some kind of 360 day prophetic year, but 483 not only solar years, but calendar years as far as the Jews were concerned. It was fulfilled. After those 483 years, Jesus was cut off. In terms of the Jewish calendar year, He was literally cut off the very next day. A.D. 70 took place. We're in that period of war and desolation for Israel until the end. And then you've got a period of seven years, which will be the tribulation. These taken together equal 490 years as regards Israel. So, do you understand why this prophecy would be important to understand as we get into the book of Revelation. As we get into the tribulation period. Because what John records broadens the scope of what Daniel records concerning the 70th week. John records revelation that puts it in the perspective of the whole world. And so... Daniel focuses on the nation of Israel in that 70 weeks. In that 70th week, John focuses on the judgment of the world in that 70th week. And so the book of Revelation from chapter 6 on to the coming of Christ in 19 is the 70th week of Daniel. It's the 70th week. It's the tribulation period. Now next week I'm going to get into when exactly this period began. When exactly Messiah the Prince took place? When exactly Jesus was born when He was crucified? And it's going to show us that this prophecy was fulfilled exactly 
as God said it would be done. It's going to require me to get into a little of Persian history. I think you'll, feel, you'll find it interesting. History is what verifies the Bible to be true. You know, the Book of Mormon is full of place names and cities and peoples that have never been verified by history. Many of the places named in the Bible still exist today. There are places and cities with those names. They're there. They're historic. A lot of the cities in, in the Book of Mormon, there's, no, there's, never, there's not even a place named that anywhere near there today. Archaeology revealed nothing. In fact, if you look at it real closely, all Joseph Smith did was take names from the Bible and divide them and then take the first syllable of one and combine it with the second syllable of another. I mean, it was a, it was a magician's trick. And people have fallen for it. The Quran records things that can't be verified. But the Bible's full of just, just the names of towns and villages that still exist today. Or the names of empires and cities that still in a sense exist today show the Bible to be verifiable. It's not blind faith. In history, archaeology verifies the Bible. And this prophecy of the 70 weeks as we look at it going forward is going to verify the Bible to be true. If it's true exactly here, literally here, why wouldn't it be true exactly and literally with regard to other things written in the book of Revelation? So I'm going to get into a little bit of Persian history. If you want to get an idea of what was going on during the period when this prophecy starts, I would encourage you to take time this week and read through the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Not very long books. That kind of describes the historical context. This, in fact, begins, I believe, with something that the king gives Nehemiah permission to do in the book of Nehemiah. So if you want a little background and to understand where this begins... Go study those books this week and get, set, set some context for yourself so you can better understand. So we're going to talk a little bit about Persian history. We're going to talk about the typical conservative interpretation of this passage which has been accepted throughout all of the 20th century as a legitimate way of explaining this fulfillment. I believe this conservative interpretation is wrong. I believe it's wrong. I believe it's a good attempt to explain it, but it's an unnecessary way of making the Scriptures say something they don't say. And we don't have to do that as believers in God's, God's Word. So I'm going to show you why this isn't a general fulfillment, but a specific one by looking at the typical interpretation and then showing you why some of this is wrong. We're going to have to look at calendars. How is our calendar today different from the calendar that took place in, that was in Jesus' day and then the calendar that was in place during Nehemiah's day. And then we're going to talk a little bit about divine providence and how seemingly insignificant things in history literally change the fate of nations and literally bring about God's fulfillment in amazing ways. Nothing, we, nothing that is done is insignificant. Remember that as you carry on your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I want you to walk away from this confident that God's Word can be trusted. So, I think this will be an interesting study. I knew there was no way I could get into it today. We are a little bit late. I'm really sorry for that. I've never preached this long. But I wanted to at least sum up this chapter and give you something to study for next week.